this is the 24 frames cast and today I am going to be taking a look at the battleship Potemkin and giving you five good reasons why if you haven't watched this film before you should or if you have watched it before you should go back immediately and watch it again because I am currently working my way through a history of film movements textbook and I have arrived at Soviet cinema and what I like to do when I read these types of book is watch along with the films that they are talking about. It's an excellent way of refreshing one's film vocabulary as well as discovering some new gems. And of course, if you're going to talk about Russian cinema, The Battleship Potemkin is one of the most famous films to come out of the Soviet era. And I had watched the film many, many years ago. Uh, I, I definitely, I saw it at university when we were studying montage cinema, and I'm pretty certain I watched it in relationship to its the effect it had on the GPO film unit, documentary movement in the UK. But it had been a number of years since I've seen The Battleship Potemkin. And I got hold, I own the um, BFI Blu-ray release that came out a few years ago. And I was pleasantly surprised by how much I loved this film. I don't remember it really being that high up on my list of essentials, and it certainly has made its way up the list. It's one of those films which perhaps a lot of people have an opinion of it in terms of seeing it as the type of film you watch as being homework and not necessarily for entertainment and hopefully what I'm going to do with these five reasons that I identified with why you should watch the film is perhaps jolt you into going back and having a re-watch. So reason number one as to why I think you should watch The Battleship Potemkin. Number one, it is a reminder to get pissed off. Now it's with great sadness that in the UK the major energy providers were forced, due to the soaring price of wholesale gas, to charge us, the consumer, almost four times what we had been paying in previous years. Energy bills soared to a level whereby millions of households across the UK and Europe found themselves genuinely having to make the painful decision to put the heating on or feed their families. Here in Britain, we were advised by the NHS to keep our homes at 19 degrees in winter to avoid illness, especially for young children. And forget heat waves, it is the cold that kills the most people in a given year in terms of temperature. Now the government were quick to intervene with something called an energy price cap, and the cap was an effectively on how much energy energy companies could charge per unit. However, this did not quite tell the tale because the energy companies were in fact being paid twice, once from the consumers who they were charging the absolute earth to and then by the government via taxation on the population because despite consumers having a price cap guarantee, the actual price cap was far higher in line with the international wholesale price. So although it was set at 2,400 for the public, it was in reality over 3,000 with the government making up the difference. Energy companies were not losing a penny. Their profits were effectively being guaranteed by the government. They were making an absolute ki killing from both consumers and the taxpayer with us footing the bill in both instances. Money was being taken out of the central budget of the country to ensure corporations maintained a profit margin they had become accustomed to. 
The outrage was loud. People were genuinely having to go cold in winter. And this was a crisis, we were told. Yet this crisis and its consequences would only apply to us, the citizens of the country, not the energy companies and their precious profits. So what did we do as a populace during this time? Well, we did absolutely nothing. There was a tacit nod to not paying your bills, but in reality, absolutely nothing happened. Now, I actually made a short film about warm hubs, areas in Manchester in which residents could come and sit in the warm. That was it. Just a place where a person, most often they were elderly, could sit for seven hours without being cold. It is an outrage, and yet the outrage went nowhere. We collectively did the sum total of nothing in response to this. Why? Well, quite simply, we would rather moan than actually do. And people can only be pushed so far. And in the modern day, I think this threshold seems to extend far in advance of where it actually should. I don't believe we're being controlled by some sinister, unseen force who are trying to pacify us. I just think we have become lazy. We're not activists in any way. In fact, I believe kind of modern day activism is completely performative. It is literally just people making a point of pretending that they care about a given cause. And the Battleship Potemkin is, I think at its heart, an incredibly angry film. It is a call to arms of the people. Don't put up with this shit. In that change, and don't sit idly by. It is a good reminder not to take any shit. Now, for the record, wholesale gas prices are now at the same as they were before the crisis. Yet, we're expected to rise again slightly in January due to possible market challenges. Now, neither of our two main political parties have said anything or vowed to do anything which in reality, I think, says it all. Okay, which brings me to point number two, which is the Battleship Potemkin's place in history. Now, the film was made in the aftermath of one of the most significant moments in the history of the world, the Russian Revolution, the reverberations of which we are arguably still feeling to this day. And it serves as a reminder and perhaps a future warning that what may befall the Russian leadership. The events depicted in the Battleship Potemkin happened in 1905 in what was now known as the First Revolution, which came after Russia's humiliating defeat in the Russo-Japanese War. Thousands of young conscripts were sent to fight, and the war was a disaster for Russia, with limited Russian gains in the face of a well-determined and well-motivated enemy. Tsar Nicholas II was adamant, however, that Russia would eventually win this conflict and was forced to withdraw his forces after his generals managed to convince him that the war was unwinnable. The Russian people were completely furious and rebellions across the country swiftly followed and were eventually, and were eventually crushed brutally. However, the seeds of the revolution to come had been firmly sown. Russia would, Russians would not forgive the Tsar and his downfall was inevitable after this, especially after Russia became embroiled in World War I, again suffering horrific casualties. The Battleship Temkin has a cultural significance to the psyche of Russia, 
I think it's a warning as well. The country has only ever experienced democracy once in the 90s, and this was a complete and utter disaster, giving rise, of course, to one Vladimir Putin, the country's now de facto dictator. Putin has embarked on a disastrous war in the Ukraine, which if estimates to believe in the region of 200,000 Russians have been killed or wounded so far. The war is most likely unwinnable for either side at this point, yet history does have a way of repeating itself. It's not the rich kids who are fighting in the Ukraine, it's not the sons of oligarchs, it's young, poor conscripts from all over the country, often being sent into battle in human wave attacks, and if various videos on Twitter are to believed, some Russian units have suffered over 95% casualty rates. In June this year, Yegev Progozin, leader of the Russian mercenary group Wagner, marched on Moscow demanding justice from the Ministry of Defence over the ongoing course of the war. And we all know how that ended for Bogosian. Cracks in Russian society are beginning to show, and when watching the film, I couldn't help shake the idea that another Potemkin-like incident and its subsequent fallout may well be on the horizon. Reason number three, the battleship Potemkin's place in film history. Shortly after the Russian Revolution, the country was in a state of disorganisation. There was famine and large-scale shortages of consumer goods, and in and in the case of the Soviet Union's film industry, that meant actual film stock. Lenin did, however, see the potential for cinema. The population was largely illiterate, and it was an art form that the masses could enjoy and experience relatively cheaply, as well as a hugely effective propaganda tool. However, the Soviet film industry was virtually non-existent at this stage. 99% of films imported into the country were mostly from Germany. And yet with state help by 1924, more and more films were being produced domestically. The government created a centralised film company called Gozkino, followed by Mozkino, each trying in their various ways to kickstart the Soviet film industry. And what is so fascinating about this period is how the society of the new Soviet Union inspired the artists who came to prominence in it. Quite simply, what makes films of this period so unique is the methodology by which artists went about creating their works. The revolution had defined how society was ordered. The Soviet citizen was now part of a huge political ideological system that was far bigger than any one person. Constructivism was the main art form of the day. Artists were encouraged to make art not for art's sake, but art that could be used towards a useful end. And this largely manifested itself in art that would fulfil a social function. Artists were more like engineers, with their artwork often being compared to that of a machine. We are used to forms of interpretive art. Two people can look at the same piece and come to two very different conclusions. Soviet constructivism art had no such confusion. Its meaning was explicit to anyone viewing it. Personal interpretation away from the desired message would simply be wrong. It was art for the masses, a truly universal movement that rejected what was con considered elite forms of art, such as opera and impressionistic paintings, to appeal directly to largely uneducated populace. And make no mistake, the works from this period, be it theatre or print, are by no means bland. In fact, in the evidence I have seen, some of them are quite incredible. Indeed, I have some prints of propaganda posters from this time in my house. And that's why films of this period are so unique. They are attempts at taking a constructive approach to filmmaking and stylistically are like anything we have seen before or since. The Battleship Potemkin, Man with the Movie Camera, Mother, October and the End of St. Petersburg, to name but a few 
are a set of Soviet films born from social upheaval and artists' interpretations of the new political world they're in. And although relatively short-lived, they're a hugely influential and unrightly much-studied part of film history. Which leads me to point four, which is the main reason we talk about films, and that is montage editing. Hollywood has taught us that editing should be invisible to complement, to silently guide us through a film without ever drawing to attention to itself. There is a dynamism to montage films that sets them apart from their contemporary peers. On average, these types of films have more shots. Now, typically in a Hollywood film, an action will have one shot, but montage will sometimes use several shots from different angles, extending the time frame by which an action would take place. And in Potemkin, one of the best examples of this is a sailor smashing a plate. We actually get 10 shots of the action taking place. And then sometimes we even have a shot repeating action from a previous shot. Screen time expands noticeably. Reality is extended, yet the rapid editing often tricks the mind into thinking what you have watched is a depiction of actual time. And what's so interesting from an editing perspective, if you watch if you watch the aforementioned plate smashing scene, it almost feels like a mistakes are being made. The actor changes position from shot to shot. The experience of watching montage editing differs so much from what we have accustomed to. It is a real indication of just how inventive Russian film practitioners were in this time. There is a real sense that they are enjoying playing with the form of cinema itself. And I think um, Man with a Movie Camera is perhaps the best example of a film from that area that does that. But attempts at creating another type of cinema is to me endlessly fascinating and another trope of montage editing is the addition of non-diegetic shots we assume when we watch a film that every shot we see takes place in the film's space and time and in eisenstein's 1925 film strike we see a police officer followed by shots of a bull being slaughtered the two so shots may not be taking place in the same time but the message is clear the police officers are slaughtering the population like butchers and it's not subtle and it's not meant to be and it's what einstein would claim to be called intellectual montage but all this i think complements which i the, the fifth point i'm going to make about the film is that it is hugely entertaining forget the idea of this film being like homework it is a genuinely gripping piece of cinema it has a huge scale to it the composition of the shots is often breathtaking and Einstein has a flair Einstein has a flair for action directing that has led me to proclaim him the Michael Bay of his day and yes I'm being sarcastic Eisenstein actually makes films you want to watch but there is a kernel of truth in there it's no wonder likes of Brian De Palma has cited this film as a huge influence on him and of course the Odessa step sequence was reworked into the untouchables and overall I can't recommend the film enough for an hour and an hour and 20 minutes it flies by and the bfi has put out a wonderful blu-ray of this a few years ago the transfer looked absolutely fantastic and i'm on this soviet film marathon at the moment it has so far yielded some great finds these films are quite widely available um if you're a subscriber to the cinema paradiso um the it, it's a if you haven't heard of it, it's one of the last places where you can rent physical media. They've got them all on there. Otherwise, I'm sure you can pick them up on Amazon and eBay. So that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames Cast. Many thanks for listening. I will be back with you soon. You can find me on X or Twitter as it was once known. My handle is at Thomas24F.
C. You can always drop me an email at 24framescast at gmail.com and I will be back with you very soon. Many thanks for listening. Bye.